Good morning. It's so good to see you. My name is Luke, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm part of our uh, preaching team. You know, it's so fun to talk with uh, you and to talk with people over the last few days just about kind of everyone's different family traditions. We all have different stuff we do, right? Uh, some of you, you'll open all your presents tonight. Uh, some, most of you will probably open all your presents tomorrow. Some of you would be a little bit of both, right? You got these different traditions. We always uh, do Mexican food on Christmas Eve. Some of you will always do Chinese food on Christmas Day. You'll go see a movie. Uh, how many of you have a pickle ornament hanging in your tree? Yes, I've just learned about this this year. I, no one's explained it to me yet, but I know it's like a thing. So uh, I guess that's our mission for the next year is figure out what the pickle thing is about. Um, but we all have these kind of interesting uh, traditions that we get into. And it got me thinking about, I wonder what some of the traditions are around the world. And some of the surprising ways perhaps that other people uh, in other cultures commemorate Christmas. And so I found out about some and I want to tell you about them. Uh, the first one is uh, in Australia. You know, in Australia, it's summertime right now. And so one of the really common ways that you see Santa depicted is surfing, uh, surfing Santa. And uh, this is a common thing to see, and uh, it kind of has spawned this whole tradition where on Christmas people will don their Santa clothes and head to the beach, and they will do big group Santa surfing uh, times together. I mean, doesn't that look like Christmas to you? Uh, I haven't seen the Hallmark movie about that one yet. And then that's kind of similar to something that happens in Caracas, Venezuela. In Caracas, a lot of times people will rollerblade on their way to Christmas Mass. Anyone rollerblade here today, right? I don't think many of you did. And uh, so you're glad you didn't probably, you know, a lot of debris in the streets to navigate that way. Um, And I read about Indonesia. You know, in Indonesia, they don't have uh, many evergreen trees. And so they make trees different ways uh, by plucking chickens and making chicken feather trees. That's a common Indonesian thing. I'm sure that's pretty in its own way. Uh, Another one, and the kids, this is especially for you. So I picked this one just for you kids, this is true, is uh, there's a part of Spain uh, called Catalan, and in, in this part of Spain, um, they, they have nativity scenes, and, but there's always like this extra person involved in the nativity scene. I don't know if you can see him there. Um, he's called the Cagane, the Cagane, and uh, if you're like, what's happening? Well, here's what Cagane, Cagane translated means the pooper, <laughs> which is what you thought it was. <laughs> but you're like, that can't be what it is. That is, that is what it is. And so apparently the Cagane is there for good luck and fertility in the coming year. And you can, <laughs> this is amazing, you can buy these Cagane figures of like all sorts of famous people. You can get the Pope and you can get all the ex-presidents and you can get the Beatles and you can get Madonna. I mean, just whoever you want. That'd be a great gag gift next year. Uh, go get a Kagane for somebody. And then this one is fun. Um, in Japan, the, the big way that a lot of people celebrate uh, the Christmas meal is with, you guessed it, KFC. And, and I guess people reserve this months in advance. They make their reservations to get KFC. Uh, so if that, some of you will be like, man, actually KFC sounds kind of good. Let's do that. Uh, well, you won't, it'll be a little easier for you than it is in Japan, I suppose. So what's interesting about all these to me is that all of these are, at least to us in our culture, these are like surprising ways to like combine Christmas with something <laughs> like surfing and Christmas. That just doesn't feel like it fits. Uh, the nativity and the pooper, like that doesn't feel like it fits, right? Like this combinations, like, like that doesn't, it's, it's surprising. And so I want to ask, well, but what if those aren't the only surprising combinations of Christmas? What if actually in this very 
familiar story that's read all over the world every Christmas, what if actually in this really familiar story were some surprising combinations, some things that you go, actually upon further review, those don't seem like they would go together. And I want to show you three of them that are in this passage in Luke chapter 2. So hopefully you'll follow along with me as we do this. Three surprising combinations of Christmas. The first surprising combination is the combination of royalty and humility. Royalty and humility. In this story, we see that Jesus is coming and he's royalty. Uh, We see this in verse 4. In verse 4, Joseph is taking his family to Bethlehem. And it says he's doing that because he was of the house and lineage of David. King David was this renowned king of Israel, and, uh, and J- Joseph was a descendant of David, right? And so that's why J- Jesus is born in the line of David. He's born in the line of royalty. And, and that's actually what the angel had told Mary when he said she's pregnant. He, he told her, hey, this is what's going to happen, is you're going to have a son who's going to come and be royalty, be part of this kingdom of David. Here's what he said back in Luke chapter 1. He said, behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So, so the coming of Jesus is royalty, which, which on one hand, that's not the surprising part. I mean, you think about it, if, if God was going to come you'd kind of expect it to be royal, right? You would maybe expect it to be like astonishingly beautiful or something, right? That's how it was often in the Byzantine Empire. Uh, I've been to Turkey a number of times, and one of the things that you see as you look at some of the history of, of the different empires that have been in that land is you see uh, this purple marble, and uh, it's really, really beautiful. And actually, as part of the Byzantine Empire, uh, there would be in the palace these birthing rooms that were uh, lined entirely. The whole room was made of this purple marble because the child of the emperor had to be born in royalty. They actually called it being born in the purple. Right? And that's what you'd kind of expect, that if God's going to come, he's going to be born in the purple. He's going to be born you know, in this place of grandeur, in this place of riches and wealth and expense. And yet that's not what we see at all. Instead, we see humility. Instead, verse 7 She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. (laughs) This is a humble king. And a manger is a feeding trough for animals. And and scholars try to debate, like, well, was this made out of stone? Uh, Was it made out of wood? Uh, Some families, perhaps, just for, for, for heat as well as just protection from the elements, would sometimes keep their animals indoors and would actually carve mangers into the floor. Perhaps it was that. Either way. It ain't purple marble. <laughs> Whatever it is, this is, this is incredible humility. So we have in the Christmas story this surprising combination, royalty and humility. Here's what this means. That means that God, who is king, actually knows what it's like to be us. He's not out of touch. He's not like King Charles. Uh, king Charles uh, recently gave a speech. And uh, in this speech, one of the things he said was, my government will continue to take action to bring down inflation, to ease the cost of living for families. This is a screenshot from his speech. And nothing says, I'm in touch with the way families are experiencing inflation. Quite like that crown, you know? Like, everything about this picture just screams, I, I get you. And so he was lampooned. 
Right? People are going, this guy probably has never seen a gallon of milk, let alone knows how much one costs. Like this, he's totally out of touch. Here's what I want to tell you. Jesus is not out of touch because he's a surprising combination of royalty and humility. We see this humility in verse 7 when he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. It's really interesting. This is actually one of three times in the Gospels that Jesus is wrapped. So this is the first one. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. It's a picture of his humility. The second one is in John chapter 13. And in John chapter 13, Jesus is wrapped when he takes a towel and he wraps it around his waist. And he gets down on his knees. And in the position of the lowest servant, he washes the feet of his disciples, even Judas, who would betray him. That's the second time Jesus is wrapped. You know what the third is? It's in Mark 15, when Jesus, after dying a sinner's death on a cross for sins he didn't commit, is then wrapped up to be buried. Every time Jesus is wrapped up, it communicates his humility, it communicates his servanthood, it communicates his sacrifice. This is why, maybe this is a hard time of year for you. Maybe this is a time where it just evokes lots of memories, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes just a mixture of all of it. And you go, man, does anyone understand me? And I want to tell you, yes, Christmas tells us God does understand. He knows what it's like to come near. He knows what it's like to be near us, to be with us. The book of Hebrews says that he, he experienced all of our weaknesses and temptations, yet without sin. And so he understands us. And on the cross, he suffered for things he did not deserve to suffer for. So the great author, Dorothy Sayers, says it this way. She says the incarnation, that's the coming of Christ, means that for whatever reason God chose to let us suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death, he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Jesus has taken his own medicine. He's the combination of royalty and humility. The second surprising combination we see in this text is the combination of glory and obscurity. Glory and obscurity. This is in terms of how we see this news about Jesus announced. We see it announced with glory. Look at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. That's pretty glorious. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. I don't even know what the glory of the Lord is, but it's bright. And the result is this. And they were filled with great fear. Right? When the glory of God shows up, people tend to get on their face. And, and then look at the glorious scene in verse 13 and 14. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. So now uh, angels as far as the eye can see. And they're saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is a picture of glory. This is a picture of majesty. And again, if God were to come, wouldn't you expect that he would come with an announcement that's glorious? And he does. But the surprising combination is that he also is announced in obscurity. Because look at verse 8. Where does, where does this announcement get made? And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. Not in Jerusalem. Not in the big city. Not among the wealthy. Not among the rich. Not on, among even the religious is the glory of the coming Savior announced. But it's among the obscure, it's among the shepherds, it's among the outcasts, those on the, you know, shepherds don't smell very good. It's a low status position in this culture. And that's who God reveals himself to. 
This, this, uh, this like experiencing glory and ordinary stuff must be how so many Kansas City Chiefs fans have felt this year as they've walked into Arrowhead Stadium, you know, and then looked up and seen <laughs> Her Majesty, the Empress, the ruler of the world, Taylor Swift. Right? And, and, and Taylor, I mean, she's incredible, but she's almost, I mean, I mean, she's like this, she's not just a great famous person. She's like one of these transcendent people, right? She just seems like, whoa, is she even a real person, right? And then there she is, you know, clapping like a goober for her boyfriend and looking like she's never been in a football game before. And you're like, wow, this is like amazing. It's, it's glory and it's ordinary. Like, I don't, I, this doesn't make sense. And yet that's exactly, that's exactly what God is just loving to do. Seth mentioned a minute ago that we're going to start our study of Genesis. And when you look at Genesis 2, when God creates humanity, do you know how he does it? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. What he does is he, he takes something really ordinary. He takes the dust of the ground. There's nothing more ordinary than dust. I mean, you're just trying to get your house rid of it, but you live in Arizona, so you can't. <laughs> he takes the dust of the ground, and he combines that, and it says he breathed into the dust. Is there anything more ordinary than dust? Is there anything more sacred than God's breath? And yet when these things combined together, it formed a living man. That's why we are this strange combination as humanity of totally ordinary and yet made in the image of God glorious. God's like crazy about that. This is what he loves to do is combine glory and obscurity. And so this tells us that you might feel insignificant, you might feel invisible, you might feel like, well, nobody sees me, nobody cares, but actually God coming near, God inhabiting your story, God living the kinds of things that you and I have lived tells us like we're actually understood. One of the great stories I heard about this this year uh, came from a reporter, a New York Times reporter. She's a 48-year-old woman who uh, had been kind of a casual fan of Taylor Swift since we're on the Taylor Swift thing, let's just keep going all right she's a casual and she's going this is like a phenomenon I mean you got this tour that is breaking all these records then she comes out with the movie and so she's trying to make sense as a reporter of like what's going on here and so uh, she'd been a casual listener of Taylor's music and starts listening like in depth to all of these songs and uh and and one in particular really uh resonated with her called My Tears Ricochet and a lot of the people who pay attention to what does Taylor Swift mean and that kind of thing a lot of them would say that that song is a song about Taylor writing this experience she's had of feeling betrayed by the people who were supposed to protect her earlier in her career. And so this 48-year-old woman is listening to this song and really resonating with it because in her previous job, the people who said that they loved her and were looking out for her actually weren't treating her very well. And she feels seen by this song. And then, as part of her research, she goes to the concert, which, by the way, that's a pretty nice gig. Uh, business expense, go to the Eras tour. And she goes to that, and, and she describes it in this conversation I was listening to as a religious experience. I'm like, oh, I want to hear more about that. And so did the person interviewing. Said, well, tell, what, what do you mean religious experience? Here's what she said. She said, it helps to listen to this song because also there's this part of me that now that Taylor Swift feels that way, it lets me off the hook a little bit. If it could happen to Taylor Swift, why wouldn't it happen to me? I'm in a stadium and it all comes over me and I'm with 69,000 people that something happened to. Right, she's saying all of us connect to this music. 
I once did a story on a megachurch, and I suddenly understood what it meant to be an evangelical Christian who was saved. Like, had she said, who would like to come up here and get saved? I would have made my way up to the stage and let her put her palm on my forehead, and I would have said, I am saved. Now listen, I'm not making light of that experience at all. I think it's actually pointing us to something really, really important. That when someone who seems so transcendent and out there can articulate, here's what it feels like to be me. It feels like salvation. Listen, if, if that's what someone will experience through Taylor Swift, how much more would you experience that through the God who made Taylor Swift, who has come into this earth and has lived through the experiences like you've experienced? This is what God has come to do. So I want to tell you this Christmas, Jesus sees you. You're not invisible. You're not unimportant. He sees you. He's experienced your kinds of experiences. And he is coming as good news of great joy for all the people, even us, even us who are born in obscurity. You see royalty, you see humility. You see glory, you see obscurity. Third combination you see in Christmas is Lord and Savior. We get this from verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's first consider that word Lord, right? If you look at the Greek word, the New Testament's written in Greek. If you look at, well, what are some other ways to translate that word? You could also translate that word that's translated as Lord. You could translate it as master or ruler or owner. Now, to us, like 21st century folks, that doesn't sound like good news. Good news, you have a master. You're like, wait a minute, I thought I was my own master. Right, and everything in you starts to rise up and you go, I'm gonna be my own Lord. I gotta take care of myself. I gotta look out for myself. I can't trust anybody else. I've been hurt too many times. And so the idea that, that the, there's a, you now have a master, good news, you have an owner. Uh, that doesn't feel like good news. But what if, what if the master was also a servant? Would that change the equation? I saw this incredible video going around recently of this young woman in her 20s, and she lives in uh, East Los Angeles, and she's clearly, you know, a very progressive person, the way she even just describes herself, and, uh, and one of the things with that is she, um, you know, as she's kind of in the dating scene, it's important to her that she kind of equal opportunity paying for dates, right, and so she doesn't assume that the other person's going to pay. She's often going to pay, and there's often a little bit of a conversation about, well, who's going to pay, and uh, she ended up going on this date, and she's telling about it in this, this video with this guy that she describes as like a bro's bro. He's a dude's dude, right? This is her language. He's like a bro, and she's kind of laughing because she's like, I don't really date guys like that. You know, they're not really my thing, but like for whatever reason, it just kind of happened organically, and you know, and I go on this date with this guy who's just a bro, Right? And you can tell, like, in, in her world, that's someone that's a little intimidating, a little like, oh, I don't know. And she's like, we go on this date, and he just starts paying for everything. He pays for dinner. Like, it's not even a negotiation. He just gets out that card and lays it down, and we pay for dinner. And then we go out for drinks after, and when we go out for drinks, I'm thinking, okay, this is now going to be my chance. He, you know, he's going to want me to pay. And uh, he's, like, we're about to order drinks, and he's got to go to the restroom. He's like, hey, um, I'm going to go to the bathroom, but you know, you know what, here's my credit card. You just take it. You know, they, they, this is their first date. They don't barely know each other. He just hands her his credit card and is like, get whatever you want. And she says, I felt the feminism leaving my body. 
right? Like in the presence of a bro <laughs> who's generous and who's kind. I just felt the fem- I don't need to fight for myself. I don't need to pay for myself anymore. I can just relax. And I'm dying to hear how the second date goes. I don't know. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen the update on that. But what, what if there was a master who was generous? What if there was a, a Lord's Lord? A king's king. And all the drinks were on him. Well, there is. Because he's not just Lord, he's also Savior. What does it mean to save? Well, to save is to rescue, to keep from harm, to, to deliver, to, to, to save the day is a saying we say. You know, oh man, this day was going so bad, but oh, you saved the day. And then uh, the, your team looks like they're about to lose and the incredible play happens. And they go, oh, they saved the game. They rescued it from a loss. Right, your coffee spills on your laptop and it's like, oh no, oh, but I saved my files. Uh, by the way, kids, um, I want to show you something. You maybe haven't seen this before. It's called a floppy disk. And uh, one guy tweeted, he said, a kid saw this and said, oh, you 3D printed the save icon. <laughs> so people didn't know this was a thing. If you're like, what is that? Just ask, ask your granddad. He'll tell you all about it. You know, but the feeling of if you had saved it on that disk is so different than if it's like, uh-oh, I didn't have it. And Jesus came not just to be Lord, but to be Savior. Maybe this is why we're so drawn to, uh, to heroic stories. Because maybe deep down we know we need a Savior. That's at least what Ben Affleck says. And he's played multiple superheroes in movies. He says this. We certainly are in need of heroes. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world from natural to man-made disasters. And it's really scary. Part of the appeal of this superhero genre is wish fulfillment. Wouldn't it be nice... If there was somebody who can save us from all this, save us from ourselves, save us from the consequences of our actions, and save us from people who are evil. Hey, let's read that again. <laughs> what, wouldn't it be nice if there was somebody who can save us from all this, save us from ourselves, save us from the consequences of our actions, and save us from people who are evil? Wouldn't it be nice? It would be nice. And it is nice. Because he was born that day a savior who is Christ the Lord. We have a Lord who saves like that. Can you feel the self-reliance leaving your body? Can you feel the I have to fight for myself leaving your body? That I have to pay my own way? And instead, can you, can you begin to feel like, oh, this is just a gift to receive. That the glorious God, the royal God, The Lord, my God, is also humble and he cares about me in obscurity and he came to save his people from their sins so that we could be connected to God and in relationship with him forever. Can you just feel the fight leaving you? And so that's what I want to invite you to do this Christmas is to receive this gift. I don't know how many of you are like uh, gift card people, right? Don't buy me anything, just give me a gift card. Here's the only challenge with that. It's estimated that every year, Americans leave about $3 billion unspent on gift cards. And I just want this Christmas, don't leave this gift unspent. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords is handing you the card. Spend it. You go, well, how do I do that? How do I receive this gift? You do it with your own combination. The combination of repentance and faith. 
This is the Bible's answer of how we receive Jesus, how we experience salvation, how we get in touch with the God who is royal and humble, is repentance and faith. Now, repentance is like a theological word, but it's pretty simple. It just means to do a 180. It means you're headed this direction, and repentance is I'm going to turn around and head this direction. I'm going to stop living for myself. I'm going to stop living for self-protection. I'm going to stop living for selfishness. I'm going to stop living for my own anger and my own goals and my own money and my own power and my own everything. I'm going to turn from that and I'm going to trust in Christ by faith. That's what faith is, is it's trust. It's depending on Jesus. It's saying, Jesus, I believe that you came and that you lived a sinless life and that you died on the cross for sinners like me. And that if I'll trust you, you'll connect me with God and that you rose from the grave and that you're coming back to make all things new. And if you will trust in Christ, then you will experience salvation, not the kind you might experience at a concert but the kind that will change your trajectory and your eternity forever. Will you trust him? This is a royal God, a glorious God. He's the Lord, but he's a savior who's come in humility, who's wrapped himself in service so that you would turn from your sin and experience the life that only he can give. Let's receive that gift. Pray with me. So, Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the gift of Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would give us the ability to receive it. And so, Lord, I pray right now for anyone who you're stirring their hearts and you're inviting them to trust you. God, I pray that they would find their self-reliance leaving their body and their confidence that you are good and that you could be trusted, that it would grow, that it would strengthen, that today would be a day where they pray to you, say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I know that you're good, and I know that you made me to reflect your goodness to the world, but I have not done it because I've disobeyed you and I've walked away, but Lord, I want to trust you. I believe that Christ came for me. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I believe that if I trust in him, I can get in on this everlasting life and walk with him and experience him, not just as my savior, but as my Lord. Lord, that's what we want to pray. That's what we want to yield ourselves to. And we thank you for the salvation you bring. In Christ's name, amen.